So why do they call you Weird Neil? It was because some of the strange things I used to do to no, new hires. Uh, it was kind of weird. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Green Dot EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Hal Bryan, and I'm senior editor here at EA for print and digital content and publications. Sitting here on my left, it's... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EA Museum Programs Coordinator. Way over there across the table. Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director. All right, guys, and we've got a guest with us today that, uh, that I know we are all really excited about. He's somebody that a couple of us have worked with before a little bit. But, Chris, why don't you, uh, why don't you tell us about that handsome man across the table from you? <laughs> and I don't mean Tom. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> well, i got to tell you, we're really, really uh, excited and fortunate to have our friend Neil Hansen here today. Uh, Neil Hansen was a pilot in Air America, among other different companies and uh, endeavors. And uh, I, I got to tell you, the how I got hooked up with him was there was a group restoring a C-123. And this is probably about 13 years ago, 14 years yes, ago. Yes, it was. And I said, um, boy, I really would love to interview an Air America pilot. Do you guys know any? And right away, a uh, guy's name was Paul, who was uh, heading up that project, said, I know just a guy for you, and that's how I got connected with Neil. So, uh, and it's been an adventure ever since. So. <laughs> but Neil, thank you for being here. Ah, oh, you're welcome. I'm really happy to be here and contribute to the efforts of the EAA. Wow. Well, it's uh, certainly our privilege to have you here. Now, um, Chris, it sounds funny when you call just call him Neil. There's there's another <laughs> name by which all of us. Uh, all of us know this esteemed gentleman with all affection. And what do, what do we really call him? We, we call him Weird Neil. That's, that's, <laughs> his, that's his handle. Uh, I usually just call him Neil, but uh, a lot of the, the guys that flew with you call you Weird Neil. No, they're just weird. They're <laughs> yeah, just, exactly. Just weird. Yeah. Well, why don't we start? Uh, let's start with that, and uh, and then we'll get into your background and stuff. So, how did you uh, how did you end up getting branded Weird Neil? Because of the unusual things I do indoctrinating new pilots. And it was um, kind of the uh, uh, Marquis de Sade uh, flight training program. <laughs> and if uh, they made it through there, then great. And I'm really happy to say during the initial buildup there in Saigon, uh, where we went through 600 pilots in one year, and only about 100 of them made it. And my washout rate was horrendous. But I wasn't trying to get people to be friends. I just wanted people that aren't going to bust their tail out there. And uh, some of it was a little rough. <laughs> well, give us an example of what uh, something you'd do and somebody would look at you and say, man, that's weird. Okay, coloring books was one. <laughs> and uh, new co-pilots, uh, after I get off the ground and gear up, and you got it, hold this heading. And I'd pull out a coloring book and start coloring. And there's uh, one uh, loadmaster that was uh, with us. In fact, he just retired from the Army. But uh, he'd uh, come up and, can I color too? And I said, well, hell no, not if you're going to get outside the lines. <laughs> 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 and that would re really kind of crush the guy's confidence in where he was going and who he was with. <laughs> and what perhaps he'd signed up for. <laughs> That's that right. Point. There was a story about you getting on an airplane early before the passengers would get there. Yes, that was up there in Vincent Laos in the 123. And uh, I got on board and just, uh, they're going to have passengers from the embassy and the rest of that go down to Udorn in Thailand. And uh, I got in and sat down in one of the canvas jump seats and uh, sat there and sat there and 
plane's full, and I said, well, hell, if he's not going to show up, I'll fly the damn thing. And climbed up in the cockpit and cranked it up. <laughs> Another one was in the C-46, when we'd have flights from Saigon to Manila, was have a, a, a grocery bag full of empty beer cans. And as you took off, just tip it over and let it roll through the cockpit door down the aisle. <laughs> that is absolutely hysterical. It's a little weird, but it's, it's, it's more funny than weird. So, uh, Neil, let, let's pull back from, uh, from Southeast Asia for just a second, come back to the U.S. And, uh, and how did you get started in flying originally? Originally, I started off at 15 being a typical airport bum. Back then, you could hang out around the airports, and you could wash airplanes and get the money from that to pay for flying lessons. And it was really very good money when you come to think of that era back in 52. You get $5 for watching a J3 Cub. Well, I could do three an hour. Well, that's 15 bucks tax-free right in my pocket. And uh, if the guy had barfed in the airplane, you got another 250 or 5 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> We have a similar arrangement with Ty if, uh, when Tom has an incident uh, here in the studio. Yeah. Uh, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> shouldn't say this, but, uh, uh, well, remember, we did almost kill Tom on, one, on a, recent, uh, a recent episode. And I have so a nice hard. full cup of coffee here yeah. once again. Oh, so, uh, you know, I like to cheat death. <laughs> so, anyway, Neil, so you're, you're an airport bum. You're washing airplanes, I'm assuming, and you're trading. Uh, you're building up a little cash. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, did you, what was the first thing you flew? Uh, a Luscom 8E, oh, nice. which was a nice airplane in day. It had very stiff landing gear on it, and it wasn't the kindest thing in landing. Uh, you, you could get it to bounce and jackrabbit down the field. Detroit City Airport was unique in that the runways were paved, but next to it was grass with taxiways through the thing, nice. and you could land four abreast there. Wow. Which, uh, of course, they can't get away with that anymore. <laughs> they won't do that. But uh, it, it was just a high-density traffic area, and, and it was good training. And the one thing you didn't have was a transmitter. You only had a receiver in the airplane, uh, 378 uh, uh, was a frequency on a thing, I believe. And uh, other than that, you had the light from the towers, the red, green, yellow, and all the rest wow. of that as far as landing. And it was quite a job for the poor tower operators. My God. Uh, you got four abreast coming in. One of them's almost heading right for the tower. <laughs> and, uh, but it was an experience in, in high-density traffic without communications. That's fantastic. So from, from there, you, you do some flight training, and then uh, did you know from that, that 15 years old that you wanted to fly for a living? Yes, I did. I was addicted, and I hung out at the airport practically seven days a week. I'd ride my bicycle from high school over to the airport and either wash airplanes or if I had enough money, take a flight lesson. And uh, by the time I graduated from high school, I had already had my commercial license. Wow. That's, In fact, before I graduated. That's really, that's amazing. You can't do it now, regrettably. That's right. a shame. You can come close, but not, mm -hmm. but not with the, uh, the age requirements. Uh, so, what was your first flying job then after, after high school? Well, before I got a job, I bought an airplane. And you could buy a Cessna 140 with a brand-new annual for $1,300. Oh, my gosh. And I traded that for a Mooney Mite, and that was a great, fun airplane. I flew it down to Jamaica in the British West Indies. 
uh, which was an experience because you only had 11 gallons of gas in it. <laughs> <laughs> and somewhere along the way, you actually met Neil Loving, right? You became friends yes, with Neil. Yes, I've flown an airplane that's hanging on a wall here in a museum. Oh, Loving's Love, yeah, yeah. The, the racer. Yeah. He flew it down to Jamaica, too. Oh, I was excellent. a second single-engine, single-pilot airplane to go to Jamaica. Uh, wow. wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so did you uh, did you get into corporate flying then at, at some point? Yes, I so? did get into corporate flying uh, through all uh, the various routes that you take through Zantop and flying C-46s and uh, Charter and uh, Aero Commander 680s and things like that. And then uh, when I got furloughed from uh, Zantop in the fall, uh, the Teamsters Union was looking for a pilot for their Conrad 9800. That's a twin beach with a lot of mods on it. Uh, and it, it was a great airplane. So I started flying for them. And uh, the uh, one day he said, uh, you know, you're going to go on an overnight trip. And I did go on an overnight trip for four months. <laughs> That's a lot of overnights. <laughs> but uh, the one thing about Jimmy Hoffa, he was really a great guy to work for. Uh, he would take care of everything. If you needed clothes, just go out and get clothes. But he did insist that you call home every night. He was big on the family issue. Really? And he would actually check to make sure that you'd call to collect from a uh, union phone uh, system uh, to uh, make uh, friends with your wife again, or whoever. <laughs> so working for Jimmy Hoffa for a while, then how did that uh, how did that come to a, an end? Well, towards the end, it was quite obvious that he was going to go on a federal vacation, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as a result of that, I started looking because in corporate aviation, once the head man goes, everybody that was privy to all his travels and contacts and everything else is going to go too because the new regime doesn't want you there leaking information back and forth. Uh, so I started looking around and one was in Washington DC sitting in the uh, union offices and there was an ad in the Washington Post for pilots in Southeast Asia. And I thought that's great so I called them and uh, they sent me an application. Uh, beautiful dragon logo on the envelope and I filled it out and fired it in. And about a month or so went by, and I was finally in Washington, so I called him up and uh, got a rather gruff voice from the guy that's doing the hiring there, H.H. Dawson. And he said, no, we're not hiring right now. I thought, well, boy, that's a dead horse. I'm going to have to go find something else. And uh, I was in Meg's Field in Chicago. Oh, a favorite of ours. Yeah, the next Rest day. Rest in peace, Meg's. Yeah, that was a great little place, that's and it was awesome. raining and everything. And uh, got a call... Uh, to report to the airport manager's office. And I got in there, and they said, hold for a call from Mr. Dawson. And I wow, okay. And, uh, of course, he went through somewhat of a crazy litany to find out whether I was going to be applicable. And he said, well, can you fly good? And I said, Jesus. You know, shall I tell him the wreckage is still burning? <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> No, I said, you know, I'm fine. I got here, and the weather was bad, and made it here into Chicago. And I'll be going home tonight, too. But I also wondered how he found out, because with the union, we never told anybody where we were going. And uh, somehow he knew. Uh, <laughs> and his next question was, do you drink a lot? Well, he didn't know pilots, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
Oh, no, sir. You know, I, I'm sober enough to find the airplane, I think. <laughs> but, uh, and he says, well, can you be ready to go in two weeks? I says, well, do you mean I've got the job? He says, oh, yeah, you've got the job. That's why I called. And uh, I said, no, I'd like to give my employer at least three weeks' notice so they can find a replacement. He said, okay, three weeks. Go back to Detroit. I don't know how he knew I was out of Detroit. <laughs> but, uh, and get a passport. So at, at this point, what do you think this job is that you've you've uh, been hired for? No, I didn't know anything. I'd looked them up in the uh, Overseas Airline Guide, right. and it only showed two airplanes, uh, Convair 880 uh, and a DC-6. Really? And I thought, boy, you know, that's uh, not a lot of airplanes, you know, uh, right. but I'd like to fly either one of them. You know, that'd be fun. And uh, so I went from there and uh, said, yeah, I'll do that. And I got back to Detroit, went down to the passport office and uh, said, you know, I need a passport right away to go overseas for a job. And uh, they said, well, not less than a month to six weeks. And I said, well, I got a job that I'm supposed to be leaving here in two, three weeks. And they said, who for? Air America. And I had a passport in five days. <laughs> that kind of gave you a little warning signal. <laughs> exactly. Well, can you walk us through what it was like leaving the United States and going, you know, to Southeast Asia? Um, you know, what type of airplane did you go on, and what was your first impression when you got there? Okay. Yeah. The of course um, the the weeks went by rather fast in the stream of drunken parties and things like that, and uh, it. Uh, Ended up, I was on Northwest Orient out of Detroit to Chicago. And then Chicago nonstop, or not nonstop, but uh, via Anchorage, Alaska, then into Tokyo. And they gave you first-class tickets, and I thought that was really great. And $50 in spending money. Well, back then, $50 would get you an awful lot. But riding first class, you had free booze and all the rest of this stuff, you know, and uh, that was great and ran across uh, one other pilot that was going over, Jack Hoyer, and one uh, kicker uh, that was uh, on board, too. So for those that don't know, a kicker would be someone who's in the back of the aircraft. Right. He manages the cargo, cargo. onloading and offloading, and in the air, of course, uh, shoving it out the door. (laughs) That uh, makes sense. Waiting for it to hit the ground. (laughs) But uh, that was a, a great trip and got to Tokyo. And the next leg would have been down to Taipei in Formosa, which is now Taiwan. And uh, our ride there was on Civil Air Transport, which was one of the companies involved in uh, all of this big mess. <laughs> and uh, that airplane was just a, a dream. I've never seen any airplane in, in such decor that this one had. A large gold dragon on the side of the airplane. And the 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 gold in the thing was gold leaf it wasn't oh phony stuff wow. wow and when you got on board the front bulkhead in first class was carved mahogany wow. of a phoenix and a dragon on one side wow. and uh, stewardesses they changed costume three times en route from the flight from tokyo to taipei they had a grating uh, a costume they had a serving costume they had a departing costume wow. So they worked their tails off. Wow. <laughs> Which reminds yeah. me, Tom, it's time for your first costume yeah, first change. Costume ah, change. Yes. So we'll, we'll cover if you want to <laughs> put on your kimono or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I see. For the next one. <laughs> 
so uh, b before we move move on a little bit further, you, so the civil air transport, Chris, we were just talking about that the other day. So this yeah. this was an airline that started in China, correct? Post this World was this was clearly Chenault's airline. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So yeah. Claire Chenault, and then and then had sort of was part of sort of the amalgam of things that that's that right became through or the was Peace and Pacific America. Holding Corporation ah, out of gotcha. Delaware, and uh, the I found out before I'd left from some of the union lawyers that this was a CIA operation, which gave you great visions of Terry and the pirate stuff and all the rest of that, uh, which wow, is good, good ancient history. Yeah. Oh, Milt Kniff. Uh, yeah, Terry Milt Kniff, that's yeah. right. Uh, the creator of, uh, of Steve Canyon. Yeah. That's right. We've talked about that uh, TV show yeah. in our movie episodes, yeah. so good, good uh -huh. nice tie there. So, <laughs> so were you more Terry or more pirate? Uh, I'm not too sure. I think I was a pirate more than anything else. That works. But uh, the Pacific Holding Corporation was owned by the Central Intelligence Agency and owned Air Asia, it owned Civil Air Transport, it owned Air America, Arizona helicopters, and a number of other things that were hidden. Uh, the agency had this and many other companies uh, because they couldn't ask for funds to go into a neutral country and conduct wartime operations. So their funding came from the backyard. Uh, many com companies here in America, one of the largest trucking companies and several others, were inadvertently funding them. They didn't know who owned them. Interesting. So they're, they're, yeah. they're running you know, legitimate for-profit businesses. That's right. And raising, uh, raising money that way. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> Diabolically clever. Yeah, it's still going on. <laughs> so one thing uh, that I know about our America is you kind of had an eclectic fleet over there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the um, the types of aircraft you were flying um, uh, during your career over in Southeast Asia? Okay, I flew the DC-6. I flew the DC-3, the C-46, the Beechcraft 10-2, the Beechcraft C-45, the Beechcraft Bolpar. Uh, the Dornier DO-28, and even the Piper Apache. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, can you tell me about your, uh, you have a great rundown of your flight that you did. I think it was in a DC-6. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the whole, could you tell us about running through Oh, yeah. Uh, Southern Air Transport was uh, uh, used to transport Stars and Stripes magazine, or newspapers, and troops throughout Southeast Asia uh, to, out of, uh, Tachikawa, Japan, Okinawa, Taiwan, uh, Clark Field in the Philippines, into Saigon, and into Bangkok. But every once in a while, when you got into Clark Field in the Philippines, they'd pull the airplane over to the other side of the field, and they'd strip off all the markings. There'd be no identification as a U.S. airplane at all. There'd be no N numbers or any other numbers on the airplane. You'd come out about 2 o'clock in the morning and find it loaded with munitions. And uh, you get in that thing after leaving all your ID and uh, operations, your wallet and everything else that identifies you, uh, and you'd take off out of Kadena. No flight plan. Heading for Southeast Asia, 10-hour flight. And you'd fly 500 feet off regular airline altitudes so you didn't have a mid-air en route. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Go down to Southeast Asia, land, offload the stuff, turn around, refuel, and come on back. Same thing. You wouldn't make any radio contact until you were about, oh, 50 miles outside of Kadena, and you call them. They'd just clear you to land. That was the last transmission you'd hear, and really? you'd land. So 
are you at what point on the flight are you told where the destination was or do you get that in advance you, but just you no get that manager? when you go into operations okay, yeah. so you're going to operations. you're given the mm -hmm. destination mm -hmm. so you're planning your own flight but you're not filing a flight plan that's no right ATC, and the munitions no are going into a neutral country which is totally illegal right. <laughs> and What's going through your uh, What's going through your head the first time uh, that you go and do this? Well, back in those days, well, back in those days, Mission Impossible was a popular thing. Sure, and you could kind of play that theme in your head, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and your mission, should you choose to accept, yeah, it, uh, will be denied by everybody, <laughs> <laughs> including whatever deity that you worship. Yeah. <laughs> That is just amazing. Um, in the list of types you were talking about flying, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the uh, was the beach the Volpar, right? Can you tell us about that just a little bit? That uh, they modified a regular old twin beach mm -hmm. to uh, tricycle gear. Oh right, and they put two Garrett engines on turboprop engines, and uh, it, it was really a going, Jesse. Uh, I had a lot of fun with that thing. If you took off, held it down, got up to about two hundred nine knots. Pull it up and you could do an aileron roll on takeoff, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the tower would be screaming. Of course, but I think given everything else that was going on under the circumstances, you probably weren't super concerned about right. getting busted for. We also for a roll. used that Volpar as a relay station south of Hanoi. It would go up to twenty thousand feet and it had a liquid oxygen system on board, and they would load the thing with fuel up to twelve thousand. 499 pounds or more <laughs> and you'd be able to hold up there for 12 hours or so that's and, incredible uh, relay messages from ground squirt transmitters uh, back to uh, wherever they went <laughs> so <clears throat> as you're doing all these things and flying different airplanes and everything i assume there's no such thing as a normal day or a typical day but but was there any sort of commonality? You'd wake up in the morning, would you and you report somewhere to get uh, to get assignments, or how do, how does that work? Well, usually the flight schedule would be out the night before. Okay. And if you went out to the airport and walked into operations, you'd see what your schedule was going to be. But if you didn't do that, you'd just find out when you walked in in the morning. Your logbook would be laying on the uh, uh, desk there, and you'd see uh, where you're going. Otherwise, you didn't, and it'd be a mixed bag from airdropping to uh, passengers to uh, regular cargo offloading and on, on the ground. Most of the things in Laos were airdropping because the enemy was too close to the area uh, for you to land without them shelling you, so you'd be dropping it from the air, either parachutes or freefall. Uh, with rice, it was freefall, uh, and that was a fun thing. <laughs> Tell us more. Tell, what, what, what's fun about dropping bags of rice? Well, they took 100-kilo bags yeah. and only put 40 kilos of rice in it and then double-bagged it, and you'd have 1,200 pounds on a pallet. Now, when it went out of the airplane, this stuff would come off that pallet and float down. Well, not float down. It would thunder down. <laughs> and if you were on the ground, it felt like an earthquake. And the bad part about that was in new drop zones, the locals there didn't know uh, how dangerous it was. Oh my and they'd see the rice coming down. They're hungry. They're going to go out and catch one of them. Well, 40 kilos, 80 pounds of rice at 120 miles an hour is going to ruin your whole day. <laughs> a way to get sort of bombarded with relief. Right. <laughs> one of the, you know, one of the things I did want to point out, uh, mm -hmm. you were talking about your a standard day over there. 
was that Air America, you guys didn't live on a base. You lived no. in, in. We lived with, with the locals. The yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We lived with the locals. We caught the local bugs. We ate the local food. We did not have. Well, we did have a mess all out at the airport, but. You know, you usually eat in town. But I loved the, the local food, and I, I immersed myself in the local food because I figured if you ever got in trouble here and you were out there in the, the boonies, you better be able to eat this stuff. And the locals were eating it, and they weren't dying. So so you can tell us a little bit more about some of the jokes that you'd play on, uh, on folks over there. Uh, well, the coloring books was one, and uh, then on occasionally... Uh, on a short final going into alternate, which was kind of scary, say, oh, my God. (laughs) 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 And you'd be testing their sphincter muscle. (laughs) I'll never forget, when we had Bob Karen here, Uh, Bob Karen one day uh, while he was visiting us, Bob was the last helicopter pilot out of Saigon, Air America helicopter Uh pilot. But he looked at me one day and he says, Chris, you know why we called Weird Weird Neil Weird Neil? And I said, no, he says, because that cat was weird. <laughs> I never saw anybody eat cereal with ice cream on it. <laughs> yeah, some of those things were, uh, oh, you were testing the new guys. And when, uh, in the 123 program, we had all American co-pilots. And uh, that's exactly what they were. They were co-pilots. They sat over in the right seat and they kept their mouth shut. And uh, if uh, you didn't really trust them, make them sit on their hands. <laughs> and, so... Uh, Talking about uh, pilots and co-pilots and things, did you start uh, as a pilot? Did you start in the left seat right when you got there, or did you start as a co-pilot and have to work your way uh, work your way up? I started as a co-pilot for a couple of days. Oh, really? Just a couple of days. And uh, Saigon was building up so fast there. Uh, I was a, a captain on the line in a week, and uh, a month later, I was a uh, instructor pilot for the uh, system. And after that, they made me assistant manager flying. So you uh, you built up quite a reputation as somebody who's, uh, as you said, testing the new guys, mm-hmm. um, seeing what they're really prepared to handle, things like that. Did were you subjected to anything like that when you started? Was there was there another uh, was there already somebody weird working no. there? <laughs> no, uh-uh. it, it it didn't work that way. I, I started a new system. <laughs> Actually, yes. and uh, when I got to be assistant manager flying, I was responsible for checking these people out and, right. and giving them their captain wings and things like that. Uh, and I washed out an awful lot of people, and they were very disturbed about that. But the one nice thing that I did, uh, and I was proud of, is that nobody ever killed themselves in equipment I checked them out in. And uh, wow. you know, you just had to be mean, you know, really. And under wartime circumstances, uh, mm-hmm. that is yeah, it's that not is it's really not a impressive. fun thing. I'm not going to be their buddy, right? Uh, that was not my job. Excellent. So Neil, let's talk about the uh, the most memorable typical day you had over there. Uh, the, the time you were shot down three times in a day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's later on in the thing. We went through a lot of uh, things. Uh, uh, one day, I had 21 legs in a C-123, a four-engine airplane, shuttling refugees. The shoot-down that uh, happened in uh, 1972 that was down in Poxé, which was southern Laos. And there I went down with a 123 to stay down there and fly shuttles of munitions into fire bases up by the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, when I got down there, uh, they said, we're going to offload your airplane and put it in uh, the bomb dump. 
and tomorrow you'll come out early and go. But okay. And they said, we actually have a warning that's going to be an attack tonight. Well, that's not going to help your sleeping. <laughs> uh, we got to the hostel, which is just a house, sandbags all around the thing and guards out front. And uh, so I spent the night there, and it's not luxurious accommodations. You're sleeping on a regular army cot with a, a thin mattress on it. But the next morning, got up and uh, having breakfast there in the, the little kitchen they had and uh, went out to the airport, and uh, they've got the thing loaded again. Okay, so I went to the customer, which was the CIA agents, went by uh, code names. One was Tall Man, the other one was Gray Fox. <laughs> and I uh, went into their was thing. Was Tall Man really short, just to throw people in? No, off? no, he, okay. he was rather tall. So they weren't as clever as I was hoping. No, no, okay. they're not as clever. And you, you had to be very careful of these guys. Uh, for one thing, when they briefed you, they are responsible for the security in the area that they've been assigned. And... They might lie to you about going in there as well, how dangerous it is. The week before, one of our caribous had been shot down, killed the entire crew, not too far from where I was going. And another clue that you'd have on how bad it's going to be is what is the cargo? If it's artillery rounds and things like that, hey, yeah, they're booking those things out and bad guys are a long ways away. Well, this load was small arms ammunition, claymore mines, and hand grenades. Yeah which meant the bad guys are pretty damn close. Uh, the helicopters went out first, and they were to bring out wounded. Well, if they're bringing out wounded out of the site I'm going to drop at, <laughs> there's, there's bad stuff going on there. And on the map on the wall, there was two 37-millimeter anti-aircraft positions between me and where I was going to go. So I had to dogleg around it or be on top of an overcast. And I waited till the choppers got out, and... Uh, Climbed up on above this low overcast, and I had a co-pilot. He'd actually been a full bird colonel, and he got that because he had a Ph.D. in etymology. That's that's bug science. Right. So, so that's going to be a real big help. <laughs> and I always gave him a hard time. But, uh, that's impossible to imagine. Oh, yeah. Yes. But got up there and uh, listening on uh, company frequency, and the choppers called in going into these sites and called out. And I said, you know, the first site I'm going to, uh, you guys all clear there? Don't want to drop a load on them while they're on the ground. And I said, yeah, it's clear. And I contacted the uh, little customer on the ground and he says, uh, throw a smoke grenade out where you want me to drop the cargo and I'll be there in just about five minutes. And uh, when you know you're going into a hot zone, there's several ways of doing it. You either come in high and circle down, which gives the bad guys a long time to see what you're doing uh, or you get it right down on the deck and come right up on the site pull up drop and get the hell out of there and uh, in this case I, I dumped it right down on the top of the jungle and came right over to that thing and they had the kickers all set up in the back they've got to open the uh, the rear end of the airplane you got to slow it down so otherwise it'll buff it and uh, came up to the site and uh, it dropped a half a track. That's half of the uh, load on one side. Yeah, no problem. Came around, dropped the second half. And I told the guys in the back, you know, we're just going to leave the jets running. You use those for uh, drop and climb out of the thing. 
And uh, I'm just going to head right over to the other side, only about 15 miles away. And as a, a quick interjection, so you're flying a C-123, yes, a, little, a later model, which is the K, the K model. So two two big round engines and then two supplemental. That's right. Two R99. Oh, R99. R99 W is 2,500 horsepower each with water, and uh, the JE17s, uh, the uh, same uh, engine that's on the Sabre liner, 2,500 gotcha. pounds of thrust on each one of those. Gotcha. Okay. So it's a ton of power. Go ahead. And uh, so I headed over to the other one, started calling for smoke, and uh, uh, so I only had one track left. I thought maybe just do this in one fell swoop. And uh, as I overheaded it, a uh, guy on the ground called Big Bird, Big Bird, get out of here, triple A, triple A. Well, you tend to believe the guy. <laughs> and uh, bring the recips up to max and toggle the jets to 100% and jink on the way out. And uh, uh, he was just all excited on the ground. And I knew that something bad was happening. But I didn't see any fire. And uh, I, normally you'd see 50 caliber. And the bad guys, their 50 caliber was green tracers and didn't see any of that. 23 millimeter, which is really scary stuff. It's a high rate of fire in a clip. It's white hot and didn't see any of those. Now, I asked the guys in the back, did you see anything? He said, yeah, red balls went by the tail. Well, red balls means it's 37 millimeter or bigger oh, and will be an explosive round. And uh, so I went back to Poxay and tall man was there. And he says, why didn't you drop there? Well, I told him what your guy on the ground said. Well, he probably was excited because he heard an AK-47. I said, well, that really wasn't what we saw, or at least our kickers did. And if you want to go out there and call them liars, go right ahead. <laughs> and uh, no, I had two Thai kickers and uh, real good guys, Sampop and Buma. And uh, uh, no, he said, didn't want to do that. I'll have them sweep the area. Well, I kind of had an idea that was <laughs> and, <laughs> Uh, so waited for a little while, and uh, he said, yeah, they swept the area. There's nothing there. Okay. Uh, so I said, I'll go back in there, but I want some fighter cover. He said, oh, gosh, really? And I said, yeah, there's T-28s right over there. You know, I have them cranked up and be high cover for me. And I don't want to go in there until after choppers have been in and come out and have one of them hang around in case I have a problem. And he says, well, that's an awful lot, but we can do that. Uh, yeah, you know, like hell, you can't. <laughs> yeah. uh, so went back, and uh, there again, waited until the choppers went in and came out. Now, the rumor was they weren't shooting at choppers because that wasn't the big supply airplane. The gunners wanted to get the big supply airplanes, which that counted for our caribou that got nailed. And... Uh, uh, when they called out, I just um, just start throwing smoke grenades where you want this stuff and just keep throwing them. I want a big bubble of smoke coming up. And I put it right down on the top of the jungle, scaring the hell out of the monkeys and everything, and uh, uh, had the guys in the back open up and be ready and uh, just hang on. Uh, and as I got within about a half a mile of the thing, I pulled up to about 400 feet, and they nailed me right there. And it was big uh, rounds. You could hear the tick. Bam, you know, on the wing as it exploded. And immediately lost all my ailerons and uh, had to have full right rudder in it, and it was still rolling into the jungle. So pulled the power off the right side and idled the right jet, and it slowly came back down. But by this time, I was about 90 knots right on top of the canopy oh, of jungle. And she's shaking, but she was making altitude. And we got out of there, and uh, 
uh, one of the choppers said, you have a problem. And I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, well, we may have to go for a walk. And uh, fuel gauge on the right side, the 700-gallon tank was going down rapidly. And he says, you're trailing uh, fuel. And I said, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the tank was foamed. So you didn't have to worry about flame coming up and blowing your wing off. Uh, it might burn out there, but it's not going to blow you up. And uh, got out of there, and uh, I was not going to have enough gas to get back to Poxe. So I opted to go over to an old Japanese airstrip and get out over there and uh, let the choppers know what we're going to do. And on the first pass over the thing, I had the co-pilot get in the back, and he was just petrified. And uh, on all of these drops in a questionable area, I always had everybody wearing a parachute. The guys in the back all, always did. And uh, it's uncomfortable and all, but it's there if you need it. And uh, he went into the back and uh, about ready to ring the bell for them to jump. And he's back in the cockpit. And he wanted his camera. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Well, I know he can't hang on to it, so, you know, go on back there and the rest of that. And next pass, ready to ring the bell again, and he's back in the cockpit again. Forgot his survival vest. <laughs> well, that's another thing, too. I, I called uh, Sampop on the uh, intercom, said, take it away from him, throw it out the door. Because if he tries to put that vest on, his parachute won't open. <laughs> And uh, he did that. And I said, now, next pass, get his <laughs> out of here. And uh, on the next pass, I rang the bell. I was looking back down through the cabin, and uh, uh, Booma went first. He wanted to see somebody go. And Booma went, and when he leaned out the troop door to see whether his chute opened, Sampop shoved him out. <laughs> so the kicker lived yeah. up to his name. That's right. He did a good job. But uh, Bill, he'd never jumped before. I'd done some sport jumping. And uh, he didn't realize when you come in like they do in the movies and grab the D-ring and go straight out, well, that's not really the way to do it. <laughs> uh, you want to come in, take it out of the pocket, and go straight down and strip the pins out of the back, and your chute will deploy right away. Well, he <laughs> fell for quite a ways trying to figure that out. <laughs> and ruined his uh, pants, too. <laughs> But uh, want to go through the chopper pickups? Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah. well, well, finish uh, your piece of the piece of the flight. How did where did you end up? And then okay. Well, I didn't have time to get out on that pass when they were all gone. Right. And she's shaking and clattering, and uh, the banging stopped. And uh, I figured a piece had come off, and uh, so lined it up again. Not really where I wanted to be, but close enough. A lot of little clearings down there. And uh, locked the controls, killed the right engine, and uh, pushed the propeller level full forward. So I had a lot of flat plate drag on that right side and uh, exited stage door left. <laughs> and uh, I went full delta trying to get more into uh, the drop zone I wanted to be in before I pulled. Now, I, how many people have jumped? That's no? on a bucket list. But <laughs> okay. Uh, well, sport shoots are beautiful right the sleeve comes off the canopy and it stands you up and tightens up the harness and it the chute opens and it's wonderful it's very comfortable the standard parachute the canopy opens first and then the shroud lines come tight uh -huh. 
and you get blood blisters on the top of your shoulders where the harness gets you and also in your crotch where the, the <laughs> straps are. And you better have those tight or you're going to change your vocals. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I landed down there, shucked the chute, and uh, went over this little clearing. And uh, it wasn't very big, but the chopper that came in, Bob Thoreau, uh, he uh, tried to land. And he hit his tail rotor in the treetops and showered me with branches. <laughs> and uh, I don't, yeah, you fall, fall on me, uh, you know, I'm going to really be mad. But uh, he picked back up and uh, uh, put the sling down. I rode the sling up. And on board, he had wounded. And the one guy across from me after I got in the cabin, uh, he had a puddle of vomit between his boots and a bloody arm and kind of knew how he felt. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't go very far because the damage to the tail rotor started shaking real bad. And we landed on the old Japanese airstrip and came to a stop and shut down. And when uh, Bob came down out of the cockpit, he said he called for another chopper and he'd be there in a little bit. Well, it was about a half an hour. But we had Uzis on board the chopper, so we all hunkered down in the elephant grass and waited. And when he came in, he overflew us and landed about two to 300 meters away. And Jesus. We have to carry wounded over this guy and the rest of that and ask him, what, why, why'd you do that? He says, you guys are in a minefield. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they couldn't have been very good mines. <laughs> but uh, the wounded maxed him out, so he took off with the wounded and called for another chopper. And finally the other chopper came in, and uh, we got in that one and got to the edge of the Plateau de Bovans, which is a large mesa. And he ran out of gas. <laughs> and we auto-rotated down a little near a little village in a rice paddy. Uh, we didn't know it's a friendly village or an unfriendly village. But as uh, we flared out, one of our H-34 twin packs with two Garrett engines in it pulled up alongside. And he had gun mounts on it, so that was great. <laughs> and rode that the rest of the way into the... Poxe. And that one made it all the way back. Made it all the way back. <laughs> but I walked into the uh, office there, and tall man saw me with a Uzi in my hand and kind of thought that uh, <laughs> this was going to be the end of days. <laughs> and I said, who's going to get the beer? And he said, I will, I will, I will. And he smoked out of there, and Gray Fox said, you know, Captain Hanson, he's not going to come back. <laughs> I said, well, then he's smarter than I thought he was. That's fantastic. So now, Neil, some of these, uh, uh, some of these exploits sound a little bit familiar to people uh, mm -hmm. because of the film. The, uh, yes, the, the film Air America. Air America with uh, mm -hmm. Mel Gibson and Robert Downey mm -hmm. Jr. Mm -hmm. um, can you just step us through a little bit of that. What are your impressions of it? What was your involvement? Uh, uh, and I, I know you and I have uh, did a presentation with the right. screenwriter not that long ago. So mm -hmm. tell us, just tell us about your thoughts about the movie. Okay. Uh, the movie was a movie. It wasn't <laughs> real life. It was well done in uh, the respect that Air America, the word name Air America wasn't known by anybody prior to that. Uh, was it uh, a documentary? Hell no. They can't pay Robert Downey and uh, Mel Gibson uh, $8 million and make a documentary and expect to break even. But, uh, no, it was, it was well done. Uh, like uh, John Eskow said, they patterned uh, 
uh, Mel Gibson kind of after my character. They had read the book Air America, right. and uh, uh, he he did a, a a decent job of the thing. Some of the the plot of the the drug thing was off base, but uh, it did happen. But the Corsicans were running that. Oh, really? And uh, it, uh, it it was pretty damn decent. A lot of good flying scenes uh, on right. the shoot down. They didn't do the bailout thing. Uh, they uh, crash landed, but of course that made dramatic thing, and also the thing about diving the porter into the back of the fuselage <laughs> and everything, right. uh, which good. <laughs> so, um, anything in the movie that uh, that people would assume was uh, was fake, but uh, would be surprised to know that that was actually fairly accurate. Uh, the shoot down was, uh, as far as uh, them flying helicopters and fixed wing, that never did happen. No, right. uh, fixed wing and helicopters were uh, separate entities, and they never did mix well. Uh, there's, uh, they tried to do a scene uh, of the white rose, but uh, that was really tempered down. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, it, did you actually used to get your airplane blessed by a, a Buddhist monk, didn't you? Would you actually have that done? No, uh, we didn't do that. Okay, okay. We did not do that. That That's an error. Later, after the shoot-down and the rest of that with the two Thai loadmasters I had, uh, they uh, got me to go become a monk, okay. and I did. Really? And anybody that wants to uh, be a proponent of the Buddhist philosophy has to go into a wat for at least three days. <laughs> and it's, it's quite an ordination ceremony. It's, it's a philosophy, not so much a religion. And, and, and I, I want to make sure we talk about this before the end. But you, uh, um, you, you do some lectures, and mm-hmm. you have a have a book coming out. That's right. Uh, the The book is in the hands of uh, two uh, publishers. I think we're going to settle on just one, but it will be on the racks next year. Oh, that's and, excellent. And in the museum gift shop. So. And in the museum <laughs> gift shop. And I believe we're going to do a launch here, yeah. from what I understand. That would be awesome. Available uh, at EAA.org. Yeah, <laughs> yeah EAA.org. Yeah. That sounds great. And you're doing a lecture here coming up, right? Yes, one over in uh, uh, Minneapolis, yeah, or Chapter 25, yeah. Yeah. which is already going to be good. And uh, Al Malberg has done an interview there with the uh, – guy that's setting this thing up and i don't know where the al malberg's going to be there again uh later on but i've done one with al malberg in the world of aviation and it's on available on podcast oh excellent oh that's uh, definitely something we want to check out okay one last uh one last question touching back on the movie real quick before we wrap this up because we have gone a bit long um the whole thing where uh robert downey jr is slung under a helicopter sort of wakes up uh being uh, being flown along what was the inspiration for that? I don't think there was any, other than it's cinema. It was good. It just looked good like movie. Yeah. Good, good movie, movie stock. I'm, I, I think Bob Karen said that they actually did that to somebody. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah that that there was some crazy stuff that happened there. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, uh, and one more movie question: You don't actually have the ashes of your toe in an ampule around your neck? No, I oh. don't. No, okay, I don't. Then, then what are those ashes in that ampule around your neck, Neil? Remember, there's no video Ashes of this. Ashes was a, a kind of a funny little episode down in Saigon. We had one of the old enlisted Navy pilots die in a crash. And in his thing, he wanted to, his ashes scattered at sea. So one of our guys that was a Navy officer flying the, the DC-3s opted to do that for him. 
So on the way up to Da Nang, he jogged out over the South China Sea, and he made one big mistake. His Chinese co-pilot was there, and he slid the cockpit window open and opened the top of the container. Oh, I know where and this tried is going. And pour it out. <laughs> oh. Well, it blew back in the cockpit. <laughs> and the Chinese co-pilot would never, ever fly with him again. <laughs> wow. wow. An ignominious wow. end, to say, yeah. that, to say and, the very least. And, you know, we're all having some la- you know, laughs. And, it, mm-hmm. it, and it's an amazing piece of history. But, you know, at the end of the day, we want to remember how many Air America pilots lost their lives in combat over there? 247. My gosh. And their names don't appear on the Vietnam Wall. Not a, uh, they do not appear on the Vietnam Wall. The only ones that ever honored us are the Hmong down here in Sheboygan, and they put our dead that were killed in Laos on the wall down there. And uh, one good thing about that whole play, the first performance, the sister of one of the guys that was killed there, uh, she was in the audience, and she went down and saw her brother's name. That is powerful stuff. Chris, you make an excellent point. Um, you know, we, we, we laugh through this stuff because it's mm-hmm. pieces of it are, are, are genuinely funny, but pieces of it are just so just hard to wrap your head around. It's mm-hmm. so hard to hard to imagine uh, that this was this was real uh, and and uh, the, the sorts of things that went on and and the and the laughter becomes a. You know, it's, it's a safety valve. It, it, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you for that. So with that, uh, Neil, wow, thank you for uh, a fascinating episode. We could do another two or three hours easy. Um, let's see, but Ty, yeah. Ty probably says probably we got to do another not. episode just about you getting out of there. So oh, yeah, that's right. exactly. We'll yeah. we got to come back and do uh, and do part two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, uh, uh, Neil, you're a pretty regular visitor to uh, EA headquarters here in Oshkosh. Oh, right? yes, I am. A so, docent here, too. A docent here in the museum, so we, mm-hmm. we thank you so much for that. Um, but thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule to join mm-hmm. us today. We can't wait for the book. Uh, we sure appreciate everything you've done for EAA, and uh, it is our privilege to be able to help uh, help tell some of this story. Good. Well, and, uh, yes, well, the book is going to be very interesting. My co-author, Luan Grosscup, she uh, led me down the path, and it happened here at uh, Air Venture. Excellent. Uh, one of the talks I gave down there in the flight line, and uh, she says, you ought to write it down. And I said, well, I have. But I did not realize what the publishing industry requires and how convoluted it is. And she's taken me down that path and took out some of the racier scenes, I think. <laughs> but <laughs> to that's keep a, it. That's a separate book. That's, yeah, 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 that's a whole separate book. <laughs> to keep it M-rated. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, well, and thanks also to Luann for being uh, being the brains of the operation. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, uh, Neil, for taking some time to join us today. Thanks uh, so much to everybody out there for listening, uh, for the feedback, the great reviews on iTunes and uh, Google Play and places like that. Please keep that feedback coming. Comment on the blog posts at inspired.ea.org when the episodes go live. You can always email us, feedback at ea.org If you've got uh, ideas or questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. The positive feedback we get is the only reason that, uh, that this show has, uh, has survived and thrived as it has. With that, thanks again to everybody for listening. Thanks to GE Aviation for making it all possible. And we'll see you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs>